Amen. Would you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 6? Our text this morning will be verses 15 through 23 of Romans chapter 6. We've just sung of the cross, and Ben reminded us of the eternal worship that we can give Christ. This text, I hope this morning, will help us understand the difference between a life of sin and a life of worship and righteousness. As, we, as I read it to you, think through the difference between serving Christ and not serving Christ. That's his point as we go through. Listen to the word of God. What then, he says, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to be with us this morning. Father, as we contemplate the cross and we recognize the price that your Son paid to purchase us from your wrath, but also from a a slavery to sin, Give us this morning a distaste for unrighteousness, for disobedience. Father, we acknowledge on the front end that there is a certain lure, a certain attraction, a certain pleasure that we derive from all sorts of sin. But I pray that your spirit would make those unattractive to us, that we would grow in our distaste for evil, and that we would love your son Jesus and serving him and looking forward to eternity in the full consummated kingdom, worshiping him, loving him, being with him. And may that start even today for all of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to give you a test this morning, a quiz, 
You've got one word to describe America. Now, wait, well, hold on a second. Not maybe where you're at today, not the events of the last days or weeks or years, but if you're trying to describe for someone in one word what America is about or what you think Americans would say America is about. Maybe if you could go back to the founding fathers and everything is boiled down to one term that you think in their minds would describe their goal and their desires for America, what would it be? So I'm going to count to three and you're all going to just shout out the word, the one word. You get one. It can't be a compound word, you know, with lots of dashes in between. One word that you think captures what America is supposed to be about, okay? I'm looking for a positive slant on things here. So I'm going to count to three, and you just shout out what you think America is supposed to be about. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, I heard one word more than the others, and that's the word I was looking for. Some of you, I'd be very interested to see what you said, because it wasn't all freedom. Freedom, right? That's the word that captures us. It's in our, in our national anthem the, at the end. If the singer gets the words right, at the end, they sing we are the land of the free and the home of the brave, right? It's in our declaration of independence where we have certain inalienable rights granted to us by our creator, and that is the, the, uh, the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, we have it in our Pledge of Allegiance. As kids in, in our schools say, I pledge allegiance to the flag, the United States of America, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And, of course, we have the, uh, the famous Lee Greenwood song, right? I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. Now, you could argue, and, and I, would, I would argue, that America is largely uh, handing over our freedoms uh, because we're kind of moving in the direction of a people who would say to the government, we will give you our freedom if you'll make us happy, if you'll guarantee us what we want to make us happy. But, but be that as may, generally speaking, the idea persists in our nation that we are about freedom. And you're free to do what you want. I'm free to do what I want. We are a free people. That's the governed perspective. But what is God's perspective? It's actually very, very different than that. God's perspective of you and of me and of the people on the streets, the people in our neighborhoods that we work with, his perspective is there's not a single free human being on the planet. Nowhere. Zero. You are not free. And I'm not free. And America is not free. And China is not free. And Russia is not free. And North Korea is not free. And Iran is not free. Nobody anywhere is actually free. Now, legally, we may be free to do a lot of things we choose to do, but from God's perspective, you and I are all slaves. We're slaves to somebody. In fact, there's only two masters in all of human experience. There are only two masters, and you serve one of them. You either serve sin or you serve God. 
Those are the only choices. And the Bible makes this contrast repeatedly through the New Testament. Sometimes it's, it's called walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. Sometimes it's called the natural man as opposed to the spiritual man where the spirit has taken over. Sometimes it's walking in darkness or living in darkness or the kingdom of darkness in contrast to walking in light or the kingdom of light. In our text this morning, it's slavery to God or to righteousness or slavery to sin. But every one of us and everybody in our nation is actually a slave according to God's word. We're not free ever. The only question is, who do we serve? Who is our Lord? Who is our true master? In last week's text, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, we focused, Paul focused on our natural status. Our natural status is that we are slaves to sin. We are by nature children of wrath, he says elsewhere. That's, that's the status we've born, been born into. That's the kingdom we've been born into. Is, is that this kingdom over here? I threw my wife off last week of putting the good kingdom on the other side where I normally do. I'm gonna, I'm, this is going to be the bad kingdom this, year, this week. Sorry if you're in our natural status is everybody over here is a slave to sin, hypothetically speaking. And we talked about how in Christ, sorry everybody over there, in, in Christ we have a new status. We have died to that kingdom. All those people over here, they died to that kingdom. Is that better? And now they have been born again, raised again to the kingdom of God and righteousness. It's a change of status. That old man that was a slave to sin is dead, and now we have been raised a resurrected life in Christ where we can now live and serve him and love him. That was what last week was focused on, the status, the transfer. This week, this text is more concerned with the outcome of living in one of those two kingdoms. If you live, if you're never dead to that one and risen and raised to the other one, the outcome of that is eternal death. The outcome of the new status is eternal life. C.S. Lewis once said, you have never met a mere mortal. Have you ever thought of that? You've never met a mere mortal. No one that you ever talked to, spent time with, no one you've ever seen on TV, nobody is simply a human being is going to die. We live forever. Every soul that's been created is an eternal soul. There are times when I think about this and I've got three children and it, is, it boggles my mind that somehow God has given Krista and me the, the power, the ability to create three eternal beings who will never die. Yeah, they'll die physically. Their bodies will stop working, but their souls and their spirits will live forever and ever and ever, world without end. And that's true of everybody. There's no such thing as that mere mortal. The only question is, where are you going to spend eternity? Is it going to be eternal life, as the Bible describes it, or is it going to be eternal death? And that's the, the content of our text this morning. The, uh, it, he, Paul presents his argument in a, well, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. He, 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 
well, hang on. Let's start with verse 15. Sorry, my brain's getting ahead of my mouth. Uh, he, he starts off with a question, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Now, he's commenting on the last statement of verse 14 that he made. We looked at a little bit last week. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, you're under grace. He's anticipating where he's going to go in chapter 7. He's going to spend all of chapter 7 talking about the Jew and his relationship to God's law. And he's been hinting at that uh, throughout the whole book with little verses here, little things there. When we get to chapter 7 after the missions conference, we'll spend probably a couple of weeks diving into exactly what Paul is teaching there with respect to the Jews and the law. Here he just makes the statement, you're not under the law. You're under grace. You're not under the command or the rule of God's law. You're under the command of God's grace. But he knows us pretty well. And he knows where we're inclined to go with a statement like that. I'm not under the law. Yippee! I can do whatever I want to. And he says, shall we do that? Shall we sin since we're not under law anymore? We're under grace? He says, no. It's very similar to what he did in verse 1 of chapter 6. Remember he had said at the end of 5 that where sin grew, where sin increased, grace increased all the more? Well, he knows what we would do with a statement like that. And he begins in chapter 6, verse 1, saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Let's sin more so God can pour out more grace. He says, may it never be. Here he says, you're not under law, you're under grace. Shall we sin because we're not under law? God forbid. May it never be. No way, no how. We will come back and look at chapter 7 and our relationship with the law. Uh, but here he just, I want us to see that grace, not law, is your king. That's his point. We're under grace not under law. Now, through the rest of this chapter, he's going to construct an argument. And this is where it gets a, a little confusing as we go through. He's basically going to adopt what's called an ad hominem argument. If you've studied formal logic, you know what an ad hominem argument is. It's where you take the position of someone else and you reason it out to its logical conclusion. He says he's going to do this in verse 19. Did you notice? He says, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm speaking as men speak. I'm, I'm diving into this, this human discussion uh, for the sake of, uh, of the weakness of your flesh. He loves to do this. Paul is the master at the ad hominem argument. He does it in 1 Corinthians 15. We saw this on Easter where he says, some of you are saying there's no resurrection from the dead. Let's carry that out to its end conclusion, shall we? If there's no resurrection at all, if nobody is raised from the dead, then not even Jesus is risen. And if Jesus is not risen, then we are false preachers, we're lying about God, and by the way, you are still in your sin, carrying it all the way out. If there's no resurrection, we have no hope. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's adopting uh, the, a human argument and, and taking it out to its logical con conclusion. I saw that this week. A congressman, uh, are you familiar with the, the Gosnell trial that's, that's going on? If you're not, you need to look into this. It's, it's an abortion doctor who is uh, being tried for killing probably hundreds of babies after they were born with a pair of scissors. 
and the media has not covered this story very much. And finally, a couple days ago, someone in the media actually acknowledged they weren't covering it, and, and now you, sh you should uh, check in and see all the media folks debating on whether they should have covered it more or how much they covered it and such. But of course, they have an agenda against such a thing because the question is going to be raised, if that is wrong after the baby's been delivered, then why do you back it up a step and the baby's still in the womb and it's okay to do it then? And so they, they have, they're in a kind of a quandary here. But this guy is it's just ridiculous. Uh, well, it's, it's evil is what it is. Uh, and, and he doesn't seem to care. And, and a congressman this week came out, just was it yesterday? Krista was uh, sharing this with me. A congressman said uh, if, if he'd gone into a nursery with an assault rifle, the media would be all over it. Uh, and, and what the congressman there is doing is he's adopting an ad hominem argument. He's saying, let's just take this to its logical conclusion. Uh, here's why media is responding the way they are. If it were like this, then this is what they would do. It was a, it was a good point. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He's, he's jumping into this discussion of shall we continue in sin because we're not under law? Well, let's just reason this out to its logical conclusion. And he says he does so in verse 19 because of the weakness of your flesh. Again, he knows what we do with liberty. He knows what we're tempted to do with this kind of freedom. I'm not under the law. Great. How far can I take that? We have a proverbial saying in our culture. If you give a guy an inch, what will he take? He'll take a mile, right? You give him a little bit. Uh, many of you subscribe to Netflix, and you watch television, movies, and things on Netflix. I read an article recently where Netflix has a very unorthodox uh, office policy. Basically, if I understood correctly, they don't have uh, days off and days on. There's not a standard work week. They don't get vacations. There are no requirements as far as working in the office. It, it's, it's basically they expect you, if they hire you, to do a good job. And those who do a good job will be rewarded with continued employment, and they'll get raises in their salaries and such. If you don't do a good job, if, if you don't uh, carry your weight, then they will let you go. But there's, there's basically no accountability. You can take off anytime you want to. You can head to Hawaii, you can go, to, go on vacation, and, and you can do your work from there. They don't care so long as you produce. Now, for some people who are motivated, that's a great schedule. I'm kind of, I would work well under those circumstances, I think, because if I was there to do a job, I would strive to do it well, and I would love the freedom to kind of adjust things as I, as I want. Other people, well, it just wouldn't be a good situation, would, would it? Because what happens is we think, hey, I'm free to do what I want, and we do. We do what we want, and we don't produce. Uh, Paul talks in Galatians when he builds his whole case about being free in Christ. He says, now don't let your freedom be an excuse for the flesh. Because he knows that our tendency is, not everybody is like this all the time, but our tendency is if you don't have some accountability, you're going to let loose with your behavior. And that's what he's concerned about. He says, I I'm going to argue this way in, in human terms because you're weak. And now that I've told you you're not under law, you may end up taking advantage of this and sinning as much as you can. I don't want you to do that, he says. So I'm going to argue in this way. Now, when he sets it up at the front end saying, I'm arguing in this ad hominem uh, human argument, he's going to be taking a position that, that he's not really concerned about with the people, but he's just trying to get their attention. He's trying to show them the error of going that way. It's very much like the writer of Hebrews did. 
In the writer of Hebrews wrote chapter 6, which if you've studied Hebrews, you know that Hebrews 6 is one of the most challenging passages in all the Bible because the writer there is saying, look, if you have tasted of the good things of the Spirit and you've partaken of Christ and the, and the gospel and such, and then you fall away, there's no place for you to repent anymore. And it's a, it's a hard saying. It's a hard passage. And it's very sobering. But at the end, after he finishes the very hard thing, he says, brothers, I'm convinced of better things for you. I don't really think this is where you are. I don't think you've turned your back on the gospel. I don't think you've abandoned Christ. I have better things in store for you because I believe that your faith is genuine. That's kind of what Paul is doing here. I'm going to argue this way, but that's not really where I think you're going and where you are. And, and we know that because he starts to give his argument in verse 16 but before he can finish it, he has to assure them of what he thinks. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, I don't think you still are slaves of sin, but though you were slaves of sin, I'm thankful you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That's the gospel. You have obeyed the gospel. I believe you've obeyed the gospel. I'm convinced that you're not a slave to sin anymore, and I'm thankful for that. You've been freed from sin, and you have become slaves of righteousness, and your obedience, he says, is from the heart. Now, that could mean that it's a genuine, you know, wholehearted kind of approach. I think it's probably more talking about the internal. Your change has taken place on the inside, because that's where the gospel first starts to work, right? He works from the inside out. The gospel is not an external bunch of rules and regulations. It's a change of the heart. It's where God now comes through his Holy Spirit and gives us a desire on the inside to please him and to love him. And he says, I've heard this report about you. I believe that is true of you. Even though I'm speaking in this human argument, uh, I believe that you are on the right path. And he says, thanks be to God for that. You didn't do this. It's not your work. Ultimately, it's God's work. So let's look at his argument. Back to verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in in righteousness. Very logical argument. He's saying, you're a slave to one or the other. Think this through with me. When you give yourself as a slave to someone, now they're your master. Whoever you entrust yourself to, they're now your, they're your Lord. It's a pretty simple argument. Your slaves are the one you obey. Two options. Either you're a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. There's our dichotomy again. And the thing about being entrusted to sin is master sin doesn't stop giving commands. When you entrust yourself to sin, it leads to more and more and more and more sin. That's what he says in verses 19b and 20. So I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. You give yourself to sin, you're going to sin more, you're going to sin more, because master sin just keeps giving you commands and you keep following. Do you believe that's true? 
Do you believe that those who have given themselves as slaves to sin are truly slaves to sin? I believe that, but I must say it's, I, I catch myself sometimes acting in disbelief because I get surprised when I see who, those who are slaves to sin actually acting like slaves to sin. You read something like this Gosnell guy, this, this so-called doctor, and, and I'm shocked and I'm horrified at what he's been doing, and yet a passage like this should cause me to not be surprised at all. Uh, he's obviously a slave to sin. He doesn't care about serving God. He's not a slave to righteousness. He's not interested in doing the right thing and, and pleasing God. He doesn't value life. He doesn't see these babies as made in the image of God and, and they have a right to life under our Constitution and a right to life because God created them. He, he doesn't see any of that. He's a slave to sin. And so it shouldn't surprise me the fact that not only is he killing them in a very grotesque way, but he's leading his staff, if the, the little bit of news coverage that is, if it can be trusted, leading his staff into fraudulent and illegal behavior and, and manipulating them to manipulate others so that he can continue this practice. And, and on one hand, you read the stories and, you're, and you're just, I'm just repulsed by it. And then I come to a text like this and think, it's one thing for me to re, be repulsed, but why am I surprised at all? In fact, why am I not surprised that every pro-abortion doctor isn't doing this? Because you would think that's where natural slavery to sin would lead. And there are, there are story after story after story like this. I don't know if you, if you saw, and I, I know this is all kind of downer, but we live among a people who are slaves to sin, and that's, that's why I'm bringing these up. Two or three different accounts this past week that I read, and, and I'm not sure how recent some of these things were, uh, at least two different girls, teenage girls, who went to parties, got themselves uh, inebriated somehow, passed out where they, they just didn't know, weren't conscious of what's going on, and they were assaulted and I know one of them then took her own life as a result, and I can't remember, the other one died as well, I can't remember if it was suicide or I, I believe it was. And, and you look at that and, and you experience all kinds of different emotions, of course, but one of them, for me, was just, why, how? And then I come to a text like this and I think, well, that shouldn't surprise me. It should, it should irritate me, anger me. It should, it should make me want to preach the gospel and see the kingdom of Jesus Christ come and, and want us to change the culture. But the one thing it should not do is cause me to say, how does this happen? Because we live in a culture that is enslaved to sin. And we shouldn't be surprised when a, a girl gets pregnant out of wedlock and, and turns to all kinds of illicit and sinful behavior to, to make ends, mit, uh, ends meet and to to pay for it and, and gets involved in one thing after another after another. That shouldn't surprise us, even though I will admit it does surprise me at times. It shouldn't if we believe the Word of God. Because the Word of God says we are living among a people who are enslaved to wickedness. It's who we are as a culture if we're not enslaved to righteousness. And, and Paul says slavery to sin leads to more sin. It doesn't lead to good. People who are slaves to sin don't eventually do well. They just continue to pile on sin after sin after sin. This is really the biblical statement on addiction. 
You've given yourself over to this, and it's just going to lead to more and more and more and more. We want to couch it in medical terms, but at the end of the day, it's handing ourselves over to slavery, to sin, is what he's talking about here. And notice, as he goes on, uh, verse 19, you present your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. And verse 20, he says, when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. Uh, that's, that's kind of a crass way to put it, but uh, you weren't a slave to righteousness. You were free. <laughs> you, you, weren't, you weren't enslaved to God and to righteousness when you were a slave to sin. So you were free to not do sin. I mean, I'm sorry, not do righteousness when you were a slave to sin. That's not a good thing. That's the kind of freedom that America wants to do. I want to be free to sin and free from someone telling me I'm unrighteous. That's, that's where everything is, is going, right? As we have these conversations in the culture, it's, it's not freedom where you should be able to do what you want to do and I should be able to do what I want to do. It's freedom from God's plan for us is, is what the culture really wants. And we know that because as soon as we start speaking out against the practices of the culture, what do they tell us to do? Shut up. You're not free to have those opinions. You're not free to enforce God's righteousness on us. We are free from righteousness if we are slaves to sin. And then he says, verse 21, Therefore, what benefit, or literally what fruit, were you then deriving? So you see, this is how the ad hominem argument is working. Let's get into the shoes of the person who wants to be free from the law and now sin. That's, that's his argument. Okay, so if that's the position you're going to take, I'm free from God's law, so I'm free to sin. Well, where that, what that does is you now give yourself as a slave to sin, and that's going to lead to more sin and more sin. And what's the fruit? What's the benefit to you if you were to abandon righteousness and entrust yourself to sin again? What's the fruit? And, and the next phrase, very interesting to me, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? If you're a Christian and you have died to sin and you're now a slave of righteousness, and you have been a Christian for a while, especially for those who didn't grow up in a, in a Christian home or who turned your back on, on the things of God, if, you're, if you grew up basically in a good home where you were taught well and, and you towed the line, you didn't have a big act of rebellion, then a statement like this isn't going to make that much sense to you. But there are some here that I, I know lived lives of, of great sin before they came to Christ, and Paul's asking the question, why would you want to go back to that? What did you gain from it, those things of which you are now ashamed? If we were to come up front, one person after another who turned their back on a sinful life to come to Christ and say, tell us about your life. Tell us about pre-conversion, pre-Christ life. It's rare, it seems to me, that you get someone who wants to get up and just tell all the gory details of their sin. In fact, occasionally you, you have people give testimonies like that and they're causing everybody else to stumble because of the graphic nature of their describing the, their past. And you think, I'm not sure they quite get it yet. 
It's one thing to be free in Christ, but there, isn't there a sense in which we should look back at our, our sinful behavior and be ashamed? I'm sorry I ever did those things. I'm sorry I ever thought those things, that I behaved that way, that I was uh, filled with venom and anger and, and yelled at people constantly and, and treated them poorly, or that I got drunk week in and week out time and time again, on and on and on with the stories. Paul's saying, are you not ashamed of those things now? If you understand how displeasing to God they are, you're ashamed of them. So why then would you want to turn from the law of God and say, I'm free to sin now and head back into those kinds of act activities that are shameful? Is there benefit to that? Is there profit to that? Is there fruit to that? The answer, of course, is no. But even if you don't feel the proper shame for it, he reminds us of the very sober results. At the end of verse 21, he says, For the outcome of those things is death. The word outcome there is the Greek word telos. I like to bring it up because it's a very important word in the New Testament. It means the goal or the end, where everything is heading. If you pursue a life of slavery to sin and you commit these shameable acts, the outcome, the end, the goal of those things is death. Now, he's not talking about physical death. We're all going to die. Even slaves of righteousness are going to die. He's talking about eternal death. We know that because of the contrast in verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. He's contrasting eternal life with eternal death. And we've got to be careful here and not be mistaken Eternal death does not mean we go to sleep for all eternity. It doesn't mean we die and that's it. Frankly, if that, were, if that were the end, if we got to live our lives however we want to, and then all we do is go into the grave, fall asleep, and, and we exist no more, well, there are a lot of people that say, all right, I can deny myself pleasure and, and live eternity with Christ, or I can have all the pleasure I want and just die Eh, that's not such a bad option. It's sort of, you know, two good options there uh, to choose. That's how people would think. But eternal death is like dying without ever coming to the end. It's suffering judgment because of our, uh, the punishment that we deserve because of our sin and never getting to a place where we stop being punished for our sin. Jesus talked more about hell than almost anything else. I think number one, in terms of the number of times he talked about subjects, number one, I believe, is money. And number two is hell. He talked more about hell than he did about a heaven. And he described it as a place where the worm never dies. The, the analogy, the metaphor that he uses is a lake of fire where you're like a worm thrown into the fire, but you never get to stop burning. It's eternal death. It's dying forever. That's a sobering analogy. And Paul says that is the goal, that is the outcome, that is the, the, the end point of someone who is a slave to their sin. It's serious business. Why would God do that? 
because sin is serious. Because it's a serious offense against his holiness. Someone said to me recently that, that that's somehow an expression of God's love to send someone to hell. Or that it's someone's experience of God's love, eternity in hell. The Bible never uses that kind of language at all. That's ridiculous. It's the wages of their sin. It is the right payment. It is what they deserve because they've sinned against a righteous and holy God. It is the sober reality for everyone who remains in that kingdom of sin and rebellion against God. This is why we preach the gospel, right? At the end of the day, this is why we open up Cleo Coffee. This is why we're trying to reach out to the community. This is why we continue to, to urge us here as a body to preach the gospel, to fill the city, to send missionaries overseas. And as Eric said, you, we're all missionaries to be missionaries in our culture because we, we believe that what Paul is describing here is real and true, that the outcome of a life devoted to sin is God's judgment. He spent the first four chapters of Romans laying out sin and judgment and justification by faith alone because it's the only hope. I, I trust that that is why we care about the gospel here. It's because we believe this is, is true and real. It's what he says. It's the wages of sin. It's eternal death forever and ever. So, now that you're all sober and somber. Paul has adopted this human standpoint saying, let's just ra reason this out to its logical conclusion. But I'm convinced of better things for you. But now things are different. You're no longer. You guys at Rome, you guys at Frac, you're not there anymore. That's the good news. Verse 21, therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed for the outcome of those things is death? But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. You get your fruit. And what is it? It's sanctification. It's holiness. Because we've been released from that master sin and, that's, and kingdom of darkness and, and risen to God, now we pursue a life of pleasing God. We're not rebels anymore. We're friends. We love him, and we want to do what he wants us to do. And the result of that is, the fruit of that is, holiness, increased sanctification. Now, just as we went from sin to more sin, we go from righteousness to more righteousness and more righteousness and more righteousness. And you know, objectively, as we pursue righteousness, it is good objectively, but subjectively, it feels good. Amen? Doesn't it feel good inside when you know you're pleasing God? Uh, the, the attraction of sin is, of course, there's some pleasure in it for us. We wouldn't do it if we didn't want it at some level. It feels good. Unbelievers experience this to some degree. Believers experience this to a great degree. When we give in to those evil acts, our conscience weighs us down. And there's, there's this thing out there. There's this, this 
this dark cloud, I like to think of it, it just hovers and we know it's there and we, we see the shadows and starts to cover up the sun and we start to just feel bad and so often that leads to more sin because we feel guilty, we feel yucky, we feel gross, we, just, we want to get rid of this but right now all we can think about is the sin. And we've, we've allowed the enemy to deceive us into thinking that this pursuit of sin is actually bringing us some kind of joy. But it's a fleeting joy that's always enshrouded in this cloud and we just don't feel right. But when we break out of that and we start living like we truly are and we pursue righteousness and that righteousness leads to more righteousness and more righteousness and that cloud goes away and the sun is shining again, it feels really good. We know we're pleasing to our Lord. We know he is happy with us. So objectively, we're living in righteousness, and God is pleased with us, but we feel it, which promotes more righteousness. And it's a good thing, he says. That's the benefit. And then the outcome, he uses the same word, tell us, the goal, the outcome, the end of this is eternal Life, just the opposite of eternal death, just the opposite of the lake of fire where the worm never dies. It is living in that place we talked about a few weeks ago on Easter where there's no disappointment. There's no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, never again a temptation. Can you imagine that? Imagine walking in a city where there's nothing that causes you, not one moment, nothing causes you for even a second to want to displease God. You never have a selfish thought. You never have an angry thought, a bitter thought, a lustful thought, a greedy thought. Not one time are you tempted to be lazy, to be short with your spouse or your kids. Not a single temptation to do anything wrong. I, I, I don't know what that's like, frankly. But I'm going to someday. Because that's what he promises us. The outcome of living as a slave to righteousness is someday we're going to be in that place with him forever and ever and ever. And it's going to be holy, holy, holy. And you and I are going to be holy, holy, holy. Because God's going to make us holy, holy, holy. That's the outcome. That's what's waiting for us. Those are the wages that will be paid out to us Except that's not the term he uses, is it? Did you notice? He says the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn if we serve master sin. But he doesn't actually say the wages of your righteousness is eternal life. He says it's the gift of God. Because we can't actually earn this gift. All of our works end up over in this category of being less than what is pleasing to God but he gives us this eternal life simply as a blessing, as a gift. And so Paul is concluding his argument saying, why, as you reflect on not being under God's law, why would you ever want to give yourself to sin? If you were here today, that's to be saying, can we think this through a little bit? How ridiculous that is. You've been freed from slavery to sin. You're not under God's law, and now you want to go back to sin? It's like you've been, to, to kind of twist C.S. Lewis's metaphor a little bit, you've been playing in the slop of a mud puddle, mud, mud puddle right next to the ocean. 
And finally, God gives you eyes to see the ocean. And he throws you into the ocean. And you're swimming, and you're riding the waves, and you're riding with the dolphins, and you're petting the manta rays. And it, it's just, you're, it, it's wonderful. Haven't you ever done that? I love the water. My wife will tell you, when, I, I, I think I'm part fish. I love being out there. She gets, she gets a little scared when we go to the ocean, which we don't go very often, but a few times we've been, because I, I kind of tempt God a little bit. I go out there as far as I can, and she begins to think, uh-oh, <laughs> I have lost him this time for sure. I just love being in the water, and you're out there, and it's just, it's marvelous. It's wonderful. And you look out, this whole ocean, I don't know what else to say, it's just big. Have you ever been to the ocean? You know what I'm talking about? It's like Paul is saying, you're there, and you've got the sun setting, and, you know, the whale just the right moment goes up, and you see his tail waving at you. It's like, this is so glorious. And, and then you want to go jump back in the slop of the mud puddle again? Where being in that mud puddle, not only is it yucky water, and you're getting caked in mud and dirt and whatever else in there, it's poison. It's going to kill you. And you've been freed from that and, and set loose in the ocean, and you, keep, and you want to go back to this? Why would you do that? And then to add on to that, that if you jump back in the puddle, you're now going to incur the wrath of God. Why would you do that? You wouldn't if you have your thinking cap on. Instead, you can present yourself as a slave to righteousness, as a slave to God. And you, by the way, are the recipients of this gift. He is the one that pulled you out of the slop and threw you in the, in the clean water, and the fresh water. It's his gift, eternal life forever and ever and ever. And, and you're telling me that your response to being free from the laws, you're going to go back and sin again? No. No. God's people, people who truly understand they have been set free, have a one-track mind. How can I please my Savior? I can be like the, the Netflix worker. God doesn't have to give me a bunch of rules and warn me. If you, if you go over here, so I'm going to slap your wrist. And if you go over here, I'm going to slap your wrist. Because the change has started from the inside out, remember? And now that our heart is being transformed and we recognize the difference between the slavery to sin and the slavery to righteousness and recognize the gift he has given us, we don't need a bunch of external trappings and regulations, and laws, and rules, and standards, and we don't need the rituals, and the prescribed prayers, and all that stuff. We know what God has given us, and we say, I want to please you. I want to swim in the ocean, because you are the ocean. I just want to be where you are, and I want to love you, and please you. That's where Paul is going with all this. And he's going to spend chapter 7 talking about the law, and, and there's some tough things there, but then he gets to chapter 8, and he reminds us again that God has given us his spirit, and his spirit is transforming us and leading us into greater righteousness. That's what it means to be a Christian. We live the new life now. We don't need religious stuff. We don't need the law. We can live it now because we are dead in Christ and we are risen with Christ. But he does say this. At the end of verse 23, he says, The free gift of God is eternal life. It only comes one place. 
in Christ Jesus. We talked about last week how we're filled, we, we are surrounded by people who want to change. Remember all the anonymous groups that I listed off? Uh, we missed one. Uh, if you saw Dari's shirt last week, it had Exaggerators Anonymous, One Trillion Strong and Growing. <laughs> That's a great, great shirt. And there's probably a 12-step program anonymous, too, that I, I left out somewhere along the line. People want to change. You can only change in Christ Jesus. And so the message that we bring to people is, this is the only way, is through Christ Jesus. He says that, but he also says at the end, and he doesn't just tack this on as a label, he says, Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are enslaved to somebody. You are enslaved to somebody. The question is, are you enslaved to sin, or is Jesus your Lord? Those are the only two options, and everybody is in one place or the other. And our message is, come be enslaved to Jesus. He's a good master. He's not harsh. He went to the cross. He gave his life to redeem you from the slop and from the lake of fire. He loves you. He proved it by giving himself on the cross. Come bow the knee to him. Say, Lord Jesus, I will serve you with every breath that I have, every fiber of my being. I will serve you because you're a loving and a gracious commander. If you don't do that, the only other option is you are a slave to sin which will lead to eternal death. It's the only two ways to live in the universe. And Paul says, I know you. He's talking to the, to the Romans, but I believe it applies to us too. I know you. Thanks be to God, you were slaves to sin, but you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Amen. Let me pray and give thanks for this. Father, we do give you thanks. You have opened our eyes to see the slop and the glories of the ocean. You have changed and transformed our hearts. And you've placed us into the kingdom of your Son. Father, I pray that not only would we ourselves pursue righteousness and giving ourselves as slaves to righteousness and loving you and serving you with all of our heart, would we be active and not passive in calling others into your kingdom. Father, use this church, use Cleo Coffee, use us and our individual relationships to proclaim to a people that thinks they are free that they are not. They are enslaved to sin and there is freedom from that in the kingdom of Christ. So I ask this for his glory and his sake. Amen.